Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for this night. I hope, pray, Father, you would uh, settle our hearts and take uh, out of our minds those distractions of our day and our world around us and put all that aside for just a while, Lord, and let our hearts and our minds be focused exclusively on you and on your word and on the truth of it. Let the Spirit teach us here tonight, Father. Let us be receptive to what he teaches. And give us eyes to see the text appropriately, ears to hear the teaching with an open heart and open mind. And, Father, we pray that as we learn these things, we'll consider how what you've done with your people Israel in years past is still relevant for us and what we are to do with what we learn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, We are a puny and fickle folk. Avarice, hesitation, and following are our diseases. And I think that's a description that fits Israel in Ezekiel's day perfectly. Israel was miserable in their captivity, and they were puny in their power, and they were voracious in their appetite for sin, and they were hesitant to hear the word of God. Most of all, they were following. They were following corrupt leaders as they had for centuries, and those leaders were godless men. They were intent only on serving themselves. They wanted their place of prominence among the people to be preserved. And as a result... The corruption of those men ultimately brought the whole of Israel down with them into the judgments that are now upon them in what we're studying. It wasn't just one generation of leaders, obviously. It was many. But the pattern was there consistently. And so now at the point where we're in this study, at the point of chapter 21, the Lord is concluding His declaration of judgments upon the city of Jerusalem and His warnings about the third wave of attack that is about to come. And As we move to the end of this half of the book, he takes his aim directly at the root cause of it all, which is the the corrupt leadership I just mentioned. Last week, if you remember, when we went through most of chapter 20, uh, we looked at where the Lord was explaining the pattern of judgment that has accompanied idolatry in the land of Israel whenever it has taken place, going all the way back, as you remember, to the generation that lived in Egypt, and then the generation that came out of Egypt, And now the generations of Israel that have lived in the land leading up to where we are now with Ezekiel, as each of those generations have chased after idols, they have found themselves in that same pattern in which God has to take action in order to preserve his people from what idolatry would do to them. And one of the things that happens, the judgment that is prescribed by Scripture for those who would engage in idolatry in Israel was an exile of some sort. Those who were in Egypt suffered slavery. Those who were taken out of Egypt suffered wandering. And now these who are in Israel and engaged in idolatry, they will experience exile outside the land. And the fate of exile came largely as a result of evil men in each case who led the people astray. And you'll remember even in those earlier examples of how that happened. Remember Aaron. Aaron uh, enabled the generation of those in the Exodus to sin in the way that they did at the base of the mountain. And so that's typically what you see happen. Leaders who either permit or encourage that kind of behavior. And so now at this point in Ezekiel, the Lord takes aim with his wrath at those who were leaders of Israel in this day. Let's pick up there. And to do that, we actually start at the end of chapter 20, because if you may remember, we never got past verse 44 last week. So we'll pick up in verse 45 of chapter 20 and then go into chapter 21. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Taman and speak out against the south and prophesy against the forest land of the Negev. And say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm about to kindle a fire in you, and it will consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, Is he not speaking parables? Interestingly, if you had a Hebrew Bible, the final section I just read here in chapter 20 is considered part of chapter 21 in the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible actually starts chapter 21 where we began tonight because it leads directly into where we're going in that chapter. The Lord's telling Ezekiel here, set your face against three places so that you may speak a prophecy to them. And he names three. He names Taman, then he says the south, and then he says finally the Negev. All three of those Hebrew words, the original words in Hebrew, are all general references to the southern kingdom of Judah. The word taman, which in Hebrew is tamanah, is literally the word right, as in left and right. 
And it's referring to the south because in the way they would think of the cardinal directions, Jews faced the rising sun in the east and the right would be to your south. Negev, of course, is the southern desert of the area of Judah. And the word south itself is self-explanatory. So the Lord says he's using three terms for south to reference the area of Judah in general. So this is a prophecy concerning Judah and to that kingdom, which is where we've been all along. There's nothing new here. And to the southern kingdom, the Lord says, I will soon kindle a fire in the kingdom. And that fire will consume every green tree and dry tree, the whole area from south to north. Now the good people of Israel, people like Ezekiel and Daniel, they're pictured as the good trees, the green trees. And therefore the dry ones are the spiritually dead Jews who are in the land. And that's the predominant you know, number of people in Israel. Most of them are not like Daniel or like Ezekiel, of course. But you notice, this is a judgment that the Lord says will not distinguish between the good and the bad, at least not in the sense that anyone is going to be offered an opportunity to escape. The only difference would be that the good within Israel, men like Daniel and Ezekiel, for example, would be preserved in captivity, while those who were not like those two men would not make it into captivity. They would die in the process. And this is coming from earlier chapters in the book, But if you go back in the study and you listen, you'll learn that God had put it before the people that if they would resist the invading army, they will die. If they will concede to God's judgment and voluntarily submit to Nebuchadnezzar and to the army, they're still going to go through rough times, but they're going to be preserved in captivity. That was the grace God offered. And he uses, as Ezekiel himself says, a parable here to describe this coming judgment as a flame that will not be quenched. All flesh would be burned, as it were, and know that the Lord himself was responsible from the calamity. Now at this point, having done so much of this study already, having already gone up to chapter 21 in Ezekiel, we already know what this parable is describing. I I pretty much outlined it for you, right? We're still talking about the third invasion, the coming invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into the land. And as the army moves in, obviously they're coming from a, a east-northeast direction. They come into the land. As they move through Judah, they followed a scorched-earth policy. Now, it's not the case in the first two invasions. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar first invaded, he was not intent on wiping Israel off the map. He was intent on subjugating them. And in that uh, role as a vassal, they could provide wealth to the nation of Babylon. You know, They could take their wealth and use it. And so the people weren't being killed everywhere. The cities weren't being devastated everywhere, but it was being conquered. But now in this third wave, because they've rebelled a second time against his authority, he's had it up to here. So now he's coming in with vengeance in his heart. And that's this idea of a scorched earth being represented in the parable by fire, that when he moves in, few survivors are left, no cities are left standing, he shows mercy to no one, and when he gets to Jerusalem proper, he levels the city, the walls, the temple, everything. It's as if it never existed, for the most part. If you want to get an indication of how bad it was, go read Nehemiah, and look at Nehemiah's reaction when he learns the state of what life is like down in the city. He literally wiped Israel off the map. It's an unprecedented degree of destruction, even for Babylonians. All right, so as Ezekiel relates this latest warning to the people on stuff he's been talking about now for a while, at the end of chapter 20, we hear that The exiles complain to the prophet, you know, you're just speaking in parables now. That's not a compliment. They are suggesting you're not making any sense. You're you're speaking in riddles. And as a result, what they're saying is we're not responsible to have to listen to this, much less heed it. We don't even know what you're talking about, you crazy old man. You're just speaking in parables now. And so Ezekiel complains to the Lord, asking for some defense to this charge. And that's what leads us into chapter 21, as we count it anyway. Verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, and speak against the sanctuaries, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, because I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Therefore my sword will go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming, and every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes, and it will happen, declares the Lord God. All right, so the chapter opens with 
the Lord making plain what was previously too hard for them to understand, apparently. And it's the same message. The judgment is coming against Jerusalem and all the southern kingdom. And in verse 2, the Lord says this judgment is going to impact the city, you notice. And then he mentions the sanctuaries, the, the temple. And then he mentions the land. In other words, nothing's going to be overlooked here. But more importantly, and this is the emphasis, he takes credit for it. He takes full credit for the coming destruction. He wanted his people to know he was the one, metaphorically, swinging the sword. Moreover, he says he's designed this judgment against his people to remove all Jews from the land. Notice both the righteous and the wicked from south to north. There are no exceptions. There is no place that the sword will miss. It will not be put back in its sheath, so to speak, as if he will have pity. It means he will not stop short of completing total judgment as he has promised. Now, again, we have heard similar things in this book before. And even as we hear it again, I suspect some of us at least may still be wrestling with what God is doing here. Some would question perhaps whether the Lord is is truly able to do these things. Is he truly the author of this kind of destruction, of death and mayhem in this way? And I've heard people say from time to time when this topic comes up about God and his judgment and how he dealt with his people Israel, they would say things like, you know, I don't think the Lord was actually the one doing these things. I think this is what Satan would do. This is how the enemy works. Others go so far as to say, you know, the God of the Old Testament isn't like the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament did all of this smiting, and the uh, God of the New Testament says, turn the other cheek, right? And so they don't understand how the two come together. And this is one of those moments where they might look back and say, I'm not sure how this could be true for the God that I know in the Bible. Well, for that group, if there's any here, let me remind you of the Lord's own words concerning how he works. Out of Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. He's pretty comprehensive in that statement, isn't he? How many times does he have to say, I am God, there is no other? You might say it this way, stop crediting my work to the enemy. Stop giving the enemy credit for my power and my authority and my judgment when it comes. The Lord says plainly to Israel in Isaiah, there is no source of power, there is no authority for what happens on earth besides Him. All that happens, every good thing you know and every worst thing you can imagine that has ever come to pass in all of human history, has happened according to the Lord's power and intention. He says, I am the one creating both light and darkness. And as you might know from studying Genesis with me, if you've done that, those elements to our creation were embedded into the design of creation precisely so that he would have them at his disposal as metaphors. We have light and darkness in this world so that he would have metaphors that he could draw upon in Scripture to illustrate for us what good and bad are like. And, of course, in the new heavens and new earth, there is no light and dark. It's always light because he won't need a metaphor to talk about evil anymore. It'll be gone. But in this age, in this time, when evil does exist, he uses metaphors. And so he has incorporated them into the very design of this world for the time. And he says, I did that purposely. And then he uses the symbols in the second stanza of Isaiah's verse. He says, I cause well-being, i.e. light, and I cause calamity i.e. darkness. Now, yes, Satan is real. Yes, Satan has a power of his own, as a created being can. But the Lord has far more, infinitely more power than Satan. And nothing that Satan does is without God's permissive will and control. Period. And beyond that, the Lord isn't simply working his plan and Satan's off in some corner bumbling around in his plan. No, it's all one plan. There's no plan B. Everything happens the way God intended it, exactly. And at times, if not at all times, the Lord is harnessing Satan's power as part of his plan for his creation. Remember, it was Jesus who released Judas from the meal, instructing him that that was now the time for him to do what he would do, and telling him, by the way, do it quickly. That's probably one of the clearest examples in the Bible of God's permissive will incorporating Satan's evil desires into his plan. 
We credit Satan in that moment with leading Judas to betray Jesus. Yes. But we then also acknowledge that Satan acted by and according to God's will in accomplishing that work. Remember, God wanted his son on the cross. That was the plan all along. He needed someone to put him there. And the believing members of his inner council, the other 11 disciples, were not going to betray their Lord. It required a devil, as Jesus referred to Judas in John 6. It required an unbelieving man to be a part of that inner circle. So there would be someone who would be interested in betraying Jesus and eligible to receive Satan in that way. And so God pulled one man into the circle for that purpose specifically and used him when the time came. There's another example I could give you briefly out of the Old Testament. You remember King Saul. There's a point in his life in 1 Samuel 18.10 when we hear this. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And then as you might know the rest of the story, Saul gets enraged and throws a spear at David because an evil spirit was bringing him to that outcome. And where did that evil spirit come from? God gave him an assignment. Yes, the evil spirits follow their master, Satan, but they're no less available to God as an instrument when he chooses to use one. So the Lord has always used evil to further his plan. He credits himself with creating everything that transpires in history. He is the one creating calamity. But when God does those things, he isn't sinning. Because creating calamity in the way that God uses it isn't sin when it is accomplishing righteous outcomes. You follow what I'm saying? Bad things, in our way of characterizing things, bad things are not sin. It's not bad if you lose your job. It's not bad when someone dies in a car wreck. Or I'm saying it's not sin. Those are bad things. Bad bad when you lose your job. Bad when someone dies in a car wreck. It's not sin when God lets someone lose a job. Or it's not sin when God brings someone home on a given day through a given set of circumstances. We don't judge God on those outcomes. That's not how you determine what is sin. In this situation, the one we have present in Israel, these people have been guilty of heinous sin for generations. We've covered that here. And so the Lord is perfectly right to bring judgment. And so he raises calamity for that outcome, using an instrument of his own making, the Babylonians and their army, to accomplish that. Now having said all of that, and I'm hitting that hard because I think we have a tendency in our day and age in this um, politically correct culture that now is part of our everyday life, where we we have to be very careful about what we say, and some of that's very good, certainly. But in the church, I think it gets in the way of biblically correct views of God. And we tend to think that God is a grandfather in a rocking chair. And like our grandfather in his rocking chair, he'd never do anything that we wouldn't want. He'd never say or wish for anything that isn't happy and good for us. The problem with that mindset is it's permissive. It means that God will accept us no matter how bad we want to be. Now, grace, yes, makes that a true statement. He does accept us no matter how bad we are because that's been put on Christ. That's not the same thing as saying he approves us for as bad as we want to be. Right? So, accepting that God is a God that has standards and has an expectation of righteousness put on the church, come out from the evil things of the world and separate yourself, that is supposed to mean something to us. Now, having said all that, there's a second concern for some at this point. They might accept the fact that, yes, God has this, this uh, role over all things. He has a sovereign place in all things. And so even the worst things of life have something to do with God. He has planned them. But then we come to this thought. We say, isn't he supposed to discriminate, though, in the outcomes of these things? Peter tells us, for example, that the Lord distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous when he brings judgment. And we remember that. And then we look in this case and we see him saying he's going to bring both the righteous and the wicked, both the green tree and the dry tree, to the same end in this moment. And so we start to think, if no one's escaping untouched, why is the Lord willing to allow the righteous to suffer in the same way as the unrighteous? Well, the answer is twofold. First, it's the answer I gave you a little earlier. It's not exactly turning out that way. You have some men like Daniel and Ezekiel who are caught up in it, but they don't get exactly the same outcome as those who were the wicked. But putting that aside for just a minute, there's a bigger answer to that question. Why is the whole nation suffering this way? Why didn't he just bring in some kind of selective judgment that kills just the right people and leaves the rest untouched in the land, for example? Well, the answer is the Old Covenant. That's the covenant, as we've discussed before, that has required these things to happen at all. It is the covenant that bound Israel to God under certain terms, 
And those terms included the requirement that they would never engage in idolatry. That was rule number one in the, in the law that God gave them. And it stipulated that if they engaged in idolatry, exile would be their punishment. Now this is a covenant that binds an entire nation of people to God. It is not a covenant that is individual in its effect. It's not as though everybody in Israel as an individual had to willingly agree to the Old Covenant. If you were born a Jew, you were under the Old Covenant from the moment you took your first breath, and that's the way it worked. Similar to the way it works for us. You're a citizen of this country and bound by the laws of the country the moment you're born here. No one asks you to sign up to it. It's the same thing for Israel under their law. And in that law, these things applied. And so in this unique case, and I say unique because it's a unique covenant, no other nation of people is under the law. No Gentile has ever been under the law in the sense of born into it. And no Gentile nation has ever been bound to it. It's a law given to one nation of people by God who made a singular relationship with that group of people. And it has this unique quality. They all, it's an all or none kind of agreement. Everyone in Israel is caught up in it whether they do the right things or not. And so, under the terms of this agreement, the nation is treated uniformly. That is, there is a measure of distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous in the sense that those who are righteous and obey the word of the Lord and submit to the Babylonians and allow the Babylonians to capture them, they will go off into captivity and they will be alive and they will be cared for in captivity. That's the way you get out of this situation. The unrighteous will not hear the word of the Lord. They will not obey. They will resist. They will fight back. They'll die in the battle. They won't live. There's your distinction. But to say that someone should be outside the bounds of this judgment whatsoever, well, the only way that's true is if they're not Israel. Because this is a consequence for a nation because of a covenant with that nation. And there's no getting around that. So the Lord's purpose in this is to bring such a sweeping judgment on His people in accordance with this covenant that, as he says here, that there be no question in anyone's mind who the true God is. Notice in verse 5, he says, All flesh would know that it is I, the Lord, who have acted. And in knowing that I have acted, the Lord has acted, all people would also know then that he is real, that he alone is God, that he is faithful to his covenant. Because none of those wooden idols had ever done anything like this. But because it's so terrible... And because it will affect so many people, the Lord says to Ezekiel, you begin mourning now. This is a few years before it actually happens. But nonetheless, he's told, start groaning publicly as one would do when in mourning. And obviously, you start acting up like this in public. People are going to come to you and they're going to say, what's wrong? What's wrong? What happened? And in verse 7, the Lord says, when they do that, you need to tell everyone, you're going to be doing what I'm doing soon. What I'm showing you is what everyone's going to be feeling soon enough. And that leads to the next part of the prophecy, verse 8. And again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say, a sword, a sword sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice, the rod of my son despising every tree? It is given to be polished that it may be handled. And the sword is sharpened and polished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore strike your thigh. For there is a testing, and what if even the rod which despises will be no more, declares the Lord God. You, therefore, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword for the slain. It is the sword for the great one slain which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt and may fall at all their gates. I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made for striking like lightning. It is wrapped up in readiness for slaughter. Show yourselves sharp. Go to the right. Set yourselves. Go to the left, wherever your edge is appointed. I will also clap my hands together, and I will appease my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is written in a really unique style, uh, this particular prophecy. It's in a poetic form. In fact, it's become known as the Song of the Sword. But uh, poems in Hebrew writing are different than we do it. We don't typically, you know, we do it with uh, rhyme and meter and and so on. They do it with repetition and chiasms. And this is a chiasm. Anybody notice that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right, some do maybe, but here's what a chiasm is. Uh, it's from the letter chi in Greek. The letter chi in Greek is like the fish you see on the back of people's cars. It's kind of like that. And um, 
Forget the head of the fish, just look at the tail. And that's how you want to think of a chiasm. A chiasm is a structured way of progressing in a narrative so that you begin with a series of points that work their way in, and then you back out with those same points in reverse, creating a sideways V, if you will. And if you compare at the beginning of the end of this passage, you'll see the pattern. For example, um, you see it's describing this spectacularly dangerous sword. It's almost like an Excalibur sort of massive sword, striking terror. And notice in verses 9 and 10, where it kind of opens up, there's descriptions of the sword, and it goes from sharpness to its reflections, its polished reflection. Now jump down to 15 and 16, and here again now you see the same descriptions in reverse. The polished reflections followed by the sharpness. You see that? Sharp edge there in verse 16, lightning like it was in the beginning. So if you were to label these, you'd label like verse 9 up there, A, and verse 10, B. And when you get down to the bottom, verse 16 would be A prime, and B prime would be verse 15. Follow how that works? And if you keep going, you'll find that that dovetailing just continues all the way through. So you have descriptions of slaughter and slayer in verses 11 and 12. And then you have that thought repeated on the opposite end in verses 14 and 15. With the slain in 14 and the falling of people in verse 15. It's not necessarily literally a word-for-word comparison. It's a thought-for-thought comparison. Why does this matter? You're sitting there thinking, okay, that's not really that important to me. Well, chiasms matter. They're all over the Bible. It's a very common technique. If you know how to look for them, you'll see them everywhere. The entire book of Ruth is a chiasm from front to back. The story of the flood is a chiasm from the beginning of 6 to the end of 9. Small chiasms like this appear throughout. Why is that important? Because the point, as they say, is the point. Where the pattern reverses at that point is usually a single verse, and that single verse is the point of what the writer wants you to take away. That's the emphasizing point. The verse in Noah's story that is the point of the chiasm is right after the flood where it says, and God remembered Noah. So there's this point at which everything leads up to a point, and then God remembered Noah, and then he works the problem backward from there. And um, in Ruth, it's when Ruth gets married to Boaz. And there's some really interesting things you learn as you look at chiasms. In this case, where is the point of the story? It's verse 13. It's the one verse that has no partner verse, no comparison to any other verse. It's the odd one, if you will, in the list. And the point of the chiasm in this case is that this judgment is a test. It is a testing for the people of Israel. And the test is, in this case how they will live in exile without leaders. Because that's what he says he's doing to them. He's removing their officials. He is taking away the leadership. He's putting them outside their land. He's removing every supporting structure of their normal life they've ever known. The land, their customs, their leaders, their homes, the temple. What does it mean to be uh, us, for example, if we want to try to put ourselves in a similar situation? Imagine yourself, what does it mean to be an American if your nation didn't exist, your laws don't exist, your leadership doesn't exist, your customs are gone, and you're living on the other side of the world. You call yourself an American, but there is no America. What would that mean to you at some point? Well, for most of us, it would mean, I guess I'm now German, or Australian, or wherever I ended up, right? They can't do that. They're not going to be an iota-less Jew just because they're outside the land. In fact, they're going to go back at some point. And so this is a test for them. How will they live in exile without leaders? How are they going to live in exile without any identity that's attached to the things they valued in the past? What makes a Jew? And I don't just mean in birth terms, in physical terms. I mean in in terms of their self-identity. When it gets right down to it, what makes a Jew a Jew? Their relationship with God. Their call as a people into a unique covenant relationship with the one true God. That's it. And what they had come to know and, 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 and trust in as a people was everything else. They were idolaters. The one true God was no longer their God. They had all the other stuff, the trappings of a, of a religious system, of a culture that, have, that was developed out of that system, you know, with feasts and all the rest and a Sabbath schedule and all these routines of everyday life, this cadence that made for Jewish life. But if you take God out of that cadence, the rest of the stuff has no meaning anymore. It was about worshiping God. That's where it all started. 
And what God says, the test now is, I'm going to take all that away and put you in foreign circumstances, and all that is left now is whether you will come to me as you should have and know me as your Lord. Remember, he keeps saying, all flesh will know I am the Lord and I did this. That's the goal here. Sometimes God has to do that to everybody. Not in the same way. This isn't a direct parallel to us, but in a similar sense, in a general sense. Who we are, according to Scripture, is determined now by our faith in Christ. You are in Christ. You are Christ's. That's your identity. Your identity is in Christ. You don't have an identity as a fireman or a teacher or a mother or a father. Those identities are secondary at best. Your identity is in Christ. That's the only one that passes through death. Right? When you get to the, this will be fun to find out how this works, but when you get to the kingdom, two guys meet at a dinner party. We're not going to say, Hi, I'm Steve. What do you do? <laughs> that identity, that way of thinking of who we are based on how we live, will probably no longer be the way we think. I hope not. But sometimes when that side of life becomes too real and the side of who we are in Christ fades too far, God takes that other stuff away because it gets in the way of us knowing who He is. So, backing up for a moment, we need to understand why the Lord keeps emphasizing this point of judgment and the meaning of it over and over again. And the thing you have to remember is that the Jews who are living in exile right now, even though they've already been dragged out of the land, they are still stubbornly holding on to this assumption that they will be rescued. They keep thinking that as long as the city of Jerusalem is still standing, as long as there's still a temple and a priesthood and all the rest, that sooner or later we get to go home. It's like someone who's been taken hostage. As long as they're sitting in that foreign place held hostage, their only daily hope is, well, one day we'll get out of here and get home again. All right, well, what happens when that home's not there anymore? And that's what God has to do. They would not believe the prophet when he said, you're here for the long term, you're not going home. And the Lord has said over and over again, you're not going back. This is a judgment that will lead you to stay here and die. And the best way to get them to understand that was to take away what they were hoping to go back to. In fact, everyone they're going back to will join them, those who live. And so after they see the city emptied and wiped out, the temple raised, the walls gone, all the exiles brought into the land of Babylon, simply there is no more Israel for a while, that's when the reality will finally hit them that they have come face to face in judgment with God and that He is doing this. It's not some bad set of circumstances or, or you know just bad luck. God has done this to us. So... What you get at that point in your mind, if you're Israel, is the one we've been waiting to rescue us is the one who did this to us. All right, now where do we go for our rescue? Right, there won't be one. So in verse 11, the Lord says, He hands His sword of judgment to an executioner who picks it up and does His work. And of course, who's He talking about in general? It's, it's Nebuchadnezzar, it's His army, it's, it's Babylon. And in verse 12, He says, It's going to be directed at the officials. And here's where we get to the main thought that I mentioned at the outset tonight. That is that he's going after leaders here specifically. He says the leaders of Israel are going to die in the attack. What he's saying is the officials of Israel will not have the option that men like Daniel and Ezekiel did to live through it. Their death has already been pronounced on them because these are not good men. And so they are worthy of this end. But it's not going to be a happy thing for the people of Israel. You and I might sit here at this side of it and say to ourselves, well, at least we're getting rid of all the rotten apples. But the people of Israel didn't see it that way. Not in the time. They're going to be rocked by a complete loss of their leadership. You know, traditionally they had known three types of leaders who would command the people. Judges, priests, and kings. Now we often say prophet, priest, and king. But prophets rarely held any kind of administrative or or judgment authority. You know, Samuel did a little bit. But generally, uh, Samuel was a judge. But generally you, you, you saw prophets just warning and warning and teaching. So it was judges, priests, and kings. Well, all of those guys are going to be gone. When they get into the exile, they're not going to have judges. They're not going to have a priesthood functioning. They're not going to have a king. So there's no officials when they go into exile. They're going to be leaderless. And that is both a humiliation for the people of Israel, and it's also something that provokes a lot of fear. I mean, even though those guys were evil, at least they gave Israel a sense of identity and a degree of security. I mean, it's bad enough you're in captivity away from your home, off in a foreign land, but it's a far worse thing to be held in captivity away from your country, and your country doesn't exist anymore, and your leaders have been wiped out. Now you don't even know who you are anymore. At least that's where it starts. So in verses 12 and 13, the Lord says, This will happen, and it will be an occasion for such great mourning that Ezekiel and the people will strike their thighs in despair. Now we don't relate really well to 
the way ancient Eastern people would demonstrate their anxiety or their mourning. We don't do the same things, obviously. But to sit there and just slap at your thigh in mourning, that's a a sign of outward grief. Uh, That's what he's saying will start happening. So the Lord says this will be a severe testing. And notice he says that his choice to remove all the leaders is a rod. Now what he means there is like what moms and dads used to use 50 years ago. Or maybe even more recently than that. But, you know, a switch. Right? He says it's a rod that God is using to discipline his people. And specifically, Nebuchadnezzar and his army is the rod of discipline. And having no officials while in exile over the people is the consequence of that discipline. And as they search for some kind of guidance, where are they going to end up? Historically, where does Israel end up in that search for identity and for leadership and guidance while they're in Babylon? The law. They go back to the law. And we get out of that period of their history, synagogues, scribes, rabbis, all the things you now take for granted as part of Judaism started during the Babylonian captivity in response to having nothing and wanting to continue to be Jewish, which is what God wanted out of them. So the Lord asked them, what will they do if even that rod is no more? Okay, it's like this. Have you ever said this to your child? I I know you're doing the right thing now because I'm disciplining you, because you're under punishment. But what happens when I'm not around to do this to you anymore? Are you still going to do the right thing? That's what he just said to them. Even when this rod is no more, what's what's going to happen to Israel? He's alluding to the day when Babylon gives way to Persia, as you may know. And as that happens, Cyrus lets Israel return. What kind of people are going to go back? Are there going to be any Jews who want to go back? Are they even going to still see themselves as Jewish? That's the test. He's saying they have to understand who they are in a true sense, own it in a true way, take it back to the land, and avoid idolatry. And historically, that's what happened. Idolatry never returned to Israel after this date. So, when the Lord tells Ezekiel there, clap your hands as you announce this double of the sword a third time, what he's referring to there are several things. First of all, this is a third attack. That's what he means by the third time. It's a doubling because this attack is twice as bad as any of the other ones. And he's asked to clap his hands. In a, it's kind of a mocking thing, actually. It's Ezekiel applauding the Lord in what he's doing by bringing judgment. It's kind of a, oh, well done, well done, nicely done. Now, not nice if you're Israel, but in truth it's nice. And notice the Lord joins in, verse 17. He says, I'll clap my hands too, in approval of what I'm doing. But he says, it's because what I do will appease my wrath. Now remember, the Lord instinctively experiences wrath in the face of sin. I I use terms that are anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphism means assigning human characteristics to a God who is only spirit. Right? So it's, a, it's an approximizing of, of, of him. It's like when he says he walks in the garden with Adam. Well, he didn't have feet, but it's a euphemism that helps us understand what God does. In this case, we're talking about how God responds in his wrath to sin. We say instinctive because that's how we would think of it. It's not quite that. But using that term, you get a sense of what I mean. God has no decision in this matter, in the sense that He doesn't decide whether to act against sin. He doesn't decide whether sin should be judged. It's like it's an instinctive thing of a holy and just God to judge wrath. To do otherwise is unjust, and it's incapable. God's incapable of doing the wrong thing. So He instinctively must respond to sin with wrath. That's why we needed a Savior. So the wrath would go on Him and not on us, right? So if the Lord's wrath for sin were to dissipate somehow, without cause, it's an injustice. Something has gone unpunished. And so, this severe judgment is the means by which the Lord says He appeases His wrath for the sins under the Old Covenant. And the people have violated the agreement, they've violated violated that prohibition against idolatry, so He has to act, He can't turn a blind eye to that. This is how He does it. Now what you have to understand is, in all the things God could have done, what He is not doing is wiping His people out. So the grace of God is that He established a covenant with them that despite their sin, requires God to honor them into perpetuity. That's the Abrahamic covenant. He will never let His people cease to exist because of what He said to Abraham. But he also put a second covenant next to that one, aside it, Paul says, and that covenant holds them to certain consequences when they sin under the terms of that covenant. The consequences of the old covenant 
cannot contradict the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, and they don't, but they can come alongside it. And in coming alongside it, they create this kind of calamity for this generation, for another generation, and so on. While at the same time, God is faithful to keep the seed of Israel moving through history. See how the two can work together in Israel's case? All right, so now it's time for Ezekiel to return for a moment into his prior role as a street artist, giving Israel prophecy through mime. God used mime, street performances, I called it, for Ezekiel to communicate to the people. And he does a little bit of that here again. Verse 18, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them will go out, uh, go out of one land. And make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the household idols, he looks at the liver. Into his right hand came the divination, Jerusalem, to set his battering rams, to open the mouth for slaughter, to lift up the voice for a battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up ramps, to build a siege wall. And it will be to them like a false divination in their eyes. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings iniquity to remembrance that they may be seized. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized with the hand. And you, O slain wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come, in the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. It's a passage like this. That's why you come to a Bible study where someone can explain it. Here's what he said. He starts by telling Ezekiel, you're going to make a map for these people. I want you to draw a map. You probably draw it in the dirt, maybe in a, on a tablet. And the map was a tracing of the major roads that connected Babylon into Judah, and specifically to Jerusalem and to Ramah, which is the capital city of another place called Ammon. Ammon is in the, today it's North Jordan, so it's east of the Jordan River, but north, kind of opposite the Galilee. And that's all, you know, Babylon sits northeast of both of those locations. So there was a road that went from Babylon down. It reached a point at Damascus. It took the Fertile Crescent Route, which is a, a curved route that goes above these lands where there's uh, you're not going straight through the Sahara Desert. So they come up and they go around the, the uh, Fertile Crescent and they end up in Damascus, Syria. And then at that point, the road forks. And the east fork of that road went to Rabbah and the west fork went to Jerusalem. And in those days, roads were a little more than just worn paths. It's not like there was a big sign. And so, and maps generally didn't exist, and people didn't know how to, I mean, this was not a road that, that Nebuchadnezzar commuted to to work every day. You know, he didn't know where he was going. So as his army marched, he knew generally he needed to go south. But when he got to this point, the Lord says he needed to rely on local knowledge and divination in order to understand which turn to take to get to Jerusalem. Now, as funny as that may sound, you might think, well, naturally he would have had experts. Eh, like I said, he didn't spend a lot of time in this part of the world, except when he's conquering. Okay? So in this prophecy, the Lord tells Ezekiel to explain, through this map drawing, explain to them how Babylon's army is going to find Jerusalem in that moment. Using the map, he says, he brings a sword upon Jerusalem by guiding it to them, by guiding the, the army to them. So in verse 20, you notice the Lord tells Ezekiel, Mark the left route toward Ammon and the right path to Jerusalem. So in the dirt or whatever he's doing, he actually writes the direction that each of these roads is supposed to go. And then tell the people that the king will stop at that fork, not knowing which way to go. He'll resort to divination. Then he mentions three different ways in which the king divines the proper path. And now divination, just as a brief overview, it's tapping. it's some method of tapping into demonic power for insight and for guidance. If you were here this last Saturday night on Matthew, you heard us talking about demons and what they do. And if you go back and listen to that, you might gain some insight. But in general, we're talking about demons. Now, demons, in this case, would know where Jerusalem was. So if you appeal to them for that insight and they offer it to you, they could direct somebody 
to know which way to go through some method. And there were some standard ways in which diviners did their business. And the Lord mentions three of them. Belomancy, B-E-L-O, belomancy. Belomancy is probably how you pronounce it. That's a fancy word that means they would take arrows, as you heard described, and they'd write like Babylon, uh, left and right on two different arrows, mix them up in the quiver, and then draw one. Right? It's like lots, in a sense. Letting God, or in this case the demons, drive the outcome of what you pick. Necromancy was the process of consulting idols that were believed to communicate with dead ancestors who could tell you where you were going. In reality, you're just talking to demons. By the way, anything like that, seances and all the rest, when they think they're talking to someone who's died, they're talking to demons who are imitating people. You know, the demons are the ones talking. They're making, they're saying, yes, I am your grandmother. You know, they're just, you're, you're, you're tapping into sorcery. You're tapping into divination. And then there's the third one. I love this word. It's um, hepatoscopy. And that involves inspecting the liver of dead animals. That was one of the ways in which diviners worked. They would take the, they would kill an animal, take the liver out, and based on the markings of the liver and the shape of the liver, they'd learn something. And you see liver mentioned in the text, right? That was one of the methods. In all cases, though, you're, you're talking about how someone tries to hear from a demon. Now, why is he going through all of this with Israel? Because in verse 21, the Lord says, The king of Babylon will use these methods, and from these methods he will find out how to get to Jerusalem for the attack. And he says in verse 22, that the king's divination efforts will lead him to the city properly. And as a result, there will be a battle cry, battering rams will be set up, siege ramps will be set up, and the city walls will be taken down. So... The Lord says he's going to try to figure out how to get to you. He's going to use divination to get there. Okay, that's the first part. Second part is, you notice it says, the people of the city will see Babylon's arrival through this method as some kind of colossal mistake on God's part. They expected that God would thwart the king's efforts to find Jerusalem, that he would not let the demons reveal the path, or that he would tell the answer the wrong way so that he would send them to Ammon, which was a longtime enemy of Israel. And so God would see that the Babylonian army made its way to Ammon instead and destroyed them instead. That's what they expected. In verse 23, the people of Israel are saying to themselves, we've sworn oaths to God. He's our God. We've sworn oaths to him. Certainly he's going to ensure our safety. Certainly he's going to send Babylon down the wrong path. But the problem with those oaths that they're thinking about are that they committed Israel to. They committed Israel to remaining faithful to Yahweh, which they did not do. You see, they want it both ways. They want to be able to say, God has to be faithful to us in our agreements, while at the same time, they don't want God to hold them accountable for not being faithful themselves. Well, in the agreement they had, the Old Covenant, it was a two-way agreement, unlike the one we have in the New Covenant, where it's, it's not dependent on our works. But in the Old Covenant that Israel had... There was a two-way agreement. God had to do things. They had to do things. Well, they weren't doing their part. And as we learned earlier in this study, they've actually done worse than Ammon. Israel's sins were worse than those of their neighbors, including Ammon. So in reality, Ammon was less deserving of this than Israel was. Verse 23, the Lord says, He's using this judgment to bring Israel's sin back to their mind. That's the fundamental disconnect driving Israel's misconceptions. They have failed to remember or appreciate their own sin. Look, if you do not recognize your own sin before God, then you will never understand His discipline and judgment and never benefit from it. You'll never connect the dots. You'll just be, woe is me, my life has a problem. Well, yes, but maybe it's because you're not listening to the Lord. He's trying to get your attention. I mean, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes that's what's going on. And so when judgment comes, we don't get the point if we haven't actually considered the fact that we are not doing what we should be doing. And God cares about that. In this case, he's working to make sure they do get the point. In verse 24, he says their sinful deeds will have been exposed to all and so will be their judgment. And in fact, their current king, Zedekiah, will see that his time has come. He'll have to take his crown off. He will be punished. And everything that they were exalting, which were wrong things will be made low, and all the things that they didn't want to exalt, like righteousness and goodness and obedience, will finally be exalted, as that should have been. And then notice in verse 27, this is an interesting little point as he ends the chapter on, or this section on that, he says, the deposing of Zedekiah will mark a fundamental shift in the ruling over Israel. Where before this moment, Israel had had a steady succession of kings from the time that God allowed kings in Israel, 
And that rule was uninterrupted up until this point. Now that he says that's changing. Now this is changing. The Lord is going to bring an end temporarily to the Davidic dynasty. He says he's going to bring it to ruin. And he says it three times. Ruin. And the Davidic dynasty will remain in ruins until, he says, he comes whose right it is to rule. And that's obviously a reference to Christ, right? So in other words, another consequence of this judgment is the elimination of legitimate kings ruling over Israel until the Messiah does it in the kingdom. Now you might say, well, they had some kings after this. Well, not really. They had the Maccabees who reinstituted a dynasty of sorts, but none of them were from the line of Judah. None of them were Davidic. So they were illegitimate kings. They were legitimate only in the sense that they grabbed power, but they weren't legitimate in the sense that they fulfilled God's purposes in being king. And of course, Herod's family, not only were they not from the Davidic line, they weren't even Jewish. So they were, they were Idumeans, you know, basically Edomites. So they had no claim to being king. So the point is, we are all still waiting for someone from the Davidic line to sit on the throne of Israel again, and the next one to do it is the last one who'll ever do it. And when he comes, we'll be with him. All right, now we have one last section. It's going to go quick. It's just a little bit of foreshadowing. Let me explain where it's going before we read it. In the second half of this book, when we get to chapter 25, I told you about this last week, we move from past events, like we've been looking at, historical events, to future events. Everything from chapter 25 onward in this book is yet to even happen now, even yet today. And in the first part of that second section, what God does is He deals with prophecies of how He's going to deal with all of Israel's historical enemies. Egypt, Syria, uh, Ammon, Moab, Edom, so on. What happens to them in the coming kingdom? And that's a, a section we're going to go through. But one of those enemies is the Ammonites. And because the Lord has just mentioned them, and because they play a minor role in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem in this moment, He deals with them here now. You don't, this is sort of a foreshadowing of what we're going to get to in the next section. So this is a bit of preview of what we're going to be studying. The difference is that He deals with the Ammonites historically. That's why they're in this half of the book. So this is what's already happened to them. But it's like what we're going to see when we look at the other sections coming up. All right, so let's just look at what he says. Verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the sons of Ammon and concerning their reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for the slaughter, to cause it to consume that it may be like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the wicked who are slain, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. Return it to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and I will give you into the hand of brutal men, skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be in the midst of the land. You will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. All right, quickly. You remember who the Ammonites came from? Lot, right? Who was the other half of that? Moab. So Ammon and Moab were the sons of the daughters who had the incestuous moment with their dad Lot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a Peyton Place kind of story there. And they were historically enemies of Israel from the start. So we're talking about the Ammonites, the northern side of Jordan. The Moabites were just south of that, in sort of the middle part of what was previously Transjordan. Anyway, they've always been enemies. And at this particular time in history, they did a, a, a special disservice to Israel. The Lord just mentioned that He would send the Babylonians to Jerusalem rather than to Ammon, right? And of course, the people of Israel hear this, and they're confused at first because they're thinking, gosh, the Ammonites are our historical enemies. We know they're not God's favorite. Why is God leaving them alive and coming over uh, with Babylon against us? Well, we know why they needed, Israel needed to be judged. We know that, right? But they didn't see that. So in order for God to balance the scales a little, for them to understand the bigger picture, He concludes this message of judgment about them by sort of footnoting, oh, and don't worry, I've got a plan for the Ammonites too. And after the Babylonians removed Israel from the land and destroyed Jerusalem, historically, there's records that show the Ammonites entered the land and they ransacked what little was left. They were looting, basically, after the Jews were gone. And if there were any Jews here or there, one or two Z that got left behind, the Ammonites attacked them. So naturally, the people of Israel who are in exile hear about how the Ammonites are running through the land, taking everything that was left, 
And they're wondering, why is God not taking vengeance on them? Why is He taking vengeance on us? And so the Lord connects what He does to Israel to what He will do to Ammon. He says the same sword, notice that He uses the sword analogy again. We just learned what the sword was. It was a a way of describing Nebuchadnezzar's army. Okay, The same sword that conquered Israel is going to be drawn against the Ammonites. They will suffer reproach for their acts against the Lord and His people. And even though the Lord chose to bring judgment to Israel over Ammon in this case, because it was justified, that doesn't mean Ammon's going to escape. So he's telling Ammon, don't be self-satisfied. The sons of Ammon, he says, will see false visions, and they will lie in their divination. And that causes them to be on the necks of Israel. In other words, they're going to lie to themselves about why that God has favored them over Israel. And they're going to use that as an excuse to pile on to Israel. God's forsaken His people. He now likes us better. But in verse 30, the Lord says, I'm going to let you have your time. And then He knows He says, I'm going to sheath the sword. I'm going to let you have your time. And then you're going to return to your own land. And then He says, you're going to face judgment in your own land. Sure enough, the land of Ammon was attacked not long afterward by Persia. And the Persian army was even more brutal than the Babylonian army. Men skilled in destruction, he says. Brutal men. And sure enough, they were. And the Ammonites became fuel for the fire. Their blood was in the midst of their own land. Uh, After the Persians subdued the Ammonites and their region, history basically forgot about them. And that's what the Lord says. You will not be remembered. Now, there are isolated mentions of Ammonite people in records up to about the 2nd century A.D., but not as a kind of powerful people, not as a meaningful group of people, more as like refugees, basically. And after the second century, they're basically non-existent in history. In Jeremiah, the Lord tells Israel that in the kingdom to come, the land of Ammon, so in the real kingdom we're talking about, when Jesus comes back on this same physical earth, the region of the, of the earth that has historically been Ammon's region, that will become part of Israel. Israel's New borders in the kingdom will include the land of Ammon. By the way, that's one of the things we do later in this book is we get the geography of the kingdom to include where the borders for Israel will be. So, the example of Ammon reminds us this as we finish. The Lord can harness evil to do His bidding and then turn right around and judge that vessel for its evil. God can allow Satan to use Judas to betray Christ And then he can turn right around and judge both Satan and Judas for that sin. He can do those things because the sovereignty of God may use evil as he wishes without forfeiting the right to judge evil for what it does. It's like having a rabid dog on a harness. You know what will happen if you let the dog loose. He'll attack somebody. You can... Consciously let it loose, knowing the result, and then still put the dog down afterward, if you want to make some kind of rough analogy, right? You're not, you're not going to say, because you let the dog loose, suddenly now the dog doesn't deserve to be put down. You're simply saying, I harnessed what it was instinctively going to do. Once it had done what I wanted, then I can take the step of doing what I need to do that is right in the moment. And only in, in God's case, of course, everything He does is righteous from front to back. There is no mistake in anything. I'm just saying, don't let your human way of thinking about how we do things get in the way of understanding how a God who is sovereign can do things. God can take evil, use it until he's done with it, and then judge it for everything it just did. In Isaiah, for example, when Isaiah talks about how Babylon would conquer Israel, years before it happened, hundreds of years before it happened, he talks about, in language that's really unique to Isaiah, he says, I whistle for my consecrated ones. He refers to Babylonian's army like a dog. You know, come on down and and destroy Israel. And they did. And then he turns around, passage later in Isaiah, and pronounces judgment on Babylon for having conquered his people. God can do that as a sovereign God. He can let the natural evil of mankind do what he wills it to do, and then turn around and judge it for what it did. Dear Father, once again, Father, as we think about your relationship with your people, Israel, I'm so thankful that the covenant by which you've called each of us is a covenant of grace and grace alone. And puts no standards or expectations on us outside of faith. No standards required for salvation. No behaviors required to maintain our place in your family. That is a grace we can never stop saying thank you for, Father. For if it were any other way, we'd have no hope. Thank you, Lord, for that grace. But we know also, Father, that because you have called us and named us one of your own and brought us into the family of God, we have such 
high expectations to represent the king, to live as a child of the king. And I pray, Father, we would never take that responsibility lightly. Thank you, Father, for that reminder as well. Bring us back in future weeks. Keep our minds and hearts set on listening and doing what we learn. And bring some others, Father, so we may continue to share the word with as many as you will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.